0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Peony Podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I'm joined by David Walliker, who's the Chief Digital and Partnerships Officer at Oxford University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. David and I have in some parts a very funny conversation and in other parts a very serious conversation where we cover his life journey from underachieving in school by his standards to becoming one of the UK's, if not the world's, leading healthcare CIOs. The discussion covers David's leadership style, football allegiances, his wenglish upbringing and some of his bugbears. You'll find out more as we get to know the person behind the job title. Hi everyone, before we get into this conversation with David, just want to give a shout out to this episode sponsor, Common Time. ICOM, a next-generation clinical communications app produced by Common Time, has demonstrated itself as the market-leading application to help replace aging bleep technology currently delivered by Pages, streamlining clinical communications whilst providing a secure and, most importantly, integrated clinical messaging tool that provides real-time instant messaging for all staff. CommonTime understands the structure of NHS organisations. As such, ICOM allows its users to interact as individuals, in groups, or directly using their roles and responsibilities within their team. The application hosts impressive features that include automating workflows, escalating or diverting any undelivered or unactioned requests, as well as automating the booking of beds and operating theatres. CommonTime are now working in partnership with eight NHS trusts in helping them to achieve their overarching digital strategy. David, do you remember our first interaction? I do. It was in Leeds, wasn't it? I think. It was not in Leeds. It was not in Leeds. Well, it, was. it was I sent you a video, do you remember? <laughs> yeah. So, so I <laughs> you, sent
1: you stalked me, Jack, because I think it's what you're trying to say politely.
0: Well, well, you wouldn't you wasn't replying via email, so I had to be different. Um, I sent you and probably about another just so you don't feel privileged, about 30 others. Um, a digital of
1: less important people.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it, mate. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, a a video invitation to I think it was our it was either our first or second event. It was definitely in 2018. Um, and I can't remember if it was the first or second event, but I sent a video, um, basically unlisted videos on YouTube, sent them all directly on LinkedIn saying, Hi David, I've made a video for you, please watch it, or worse to that effect, um, and basically just sent out a load of digital invites and said, uh, you know, we talk about digital digitization and digital transformation, well, here's your digital invite, blah, 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 and and basically, you was the only one that replied to me. <laughs> What's that? Really? Yeah, I know. I know. And, and for, for the man that now never, ever comes back to me, I think it was the, the first and only time you replied. Um, um, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you said you said you said to me, um, I, you know, I, I like the innovative way that you've uh, invited me or I like the, the way the innovative, innovative way that you, you've approached this. Um, let me check my calendar and I'll come back to you. And guess what? I never did, did I? (laughs) You never, ever, ever came back to me. And the only reason that I think we actually eventually met was because of Jonathan Lofthouse. um, uh, Because obviously you was was working with him in Liverpool. Of course, yeah. Yeah, because he was chairing the event that you first spoke at and so on. So there we go. If there's any event organisers looking to get hold of David on here, just make sure you know someone that he knows because that's the only way you're getting him.
1: Well, yes. But, you know, we'll come on to, I'm sure. What my dislike for all things email, Jack. But the oh, indeed. You know, but the video I remember showing people that video. It was it was it was very clever. Oh really? That's interesting. Yeah. It's really impressive. Probably the most impressive
0: piece of work you've done. <laughs> 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 can I call you? Can I call you an arse on this? <laughs> Oops, too late. Um, well, well, anyway, let's let's talk a bit about you. So, so tell me about you know your life growing up. Where where did you where did you live, or where did you live and 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 schooling etc.
1: Um, well I, I lived in, and grew up and in fact still do live now. I did the, the classic thing of leaving as soon as I was eighteen and then coming back. But the I grew up in North Wales. Um the 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 northern half of North Wales, so an area that we like to call ourselves Wenglish. Um, <laughs> Wenglish. Where, where, where we're Welsh. <laughs> we're Welsh, but we don't really sound Welsh, and so we probably sound a bit more scouse or mank. And um so I grew up there in sort of in, in rural North Wales with my with my brother and sister and it was a it was a lovely upbringing but it was very uninventful. it was as you can imagine you know north wales isn't the epicenter of the world is it um it's it's <laughs> if, if you want everything exciting to and you go in somewhere else yeah um but then on the reverse of that we get snowdonia and and the countryside and no it was it was a good good childhood enjoyed it but the um as soon as i turned 18 i moved away thought i've got to go and work in a city I've Got to go and work in london love it there um and then came back very quickly because I hated it. And yeah. I don't know, I've lived there all my adult life now as well.
0: Damn. So, so in sc- how did you find school then? Uh, see,
1: now I, I, I did find school mildly annoying, if I'm honest. Right. Because I was neither... I, I found it... And this is going to sound wrong, so bear with me while I while I say this. It's, I found it easy. And I didn't find it stimulating. Um and the the style of learning didn't really engage me you know they didn't have sort of practical type subjects or um, different ways of teaching in the in the 80s and in 90s you know I still had you know I still had milk until Maggie Fats just all our milk sort of thing in the <laughs> in, in, in the 80s and it was you know it was schooling was in the 80s and early 90s was just boring Jack and I, did, I, I didn't find it difficult. I didn't find it stretched me. I got a bit lazy um, with it because I
0: wasn't really engaged in it. And, um, yeah, and, and I think that, that sort of... So, so were you academic, would you say? Um, I
1: think I was a lot more academic than my grades would have suggested. From. What, from, what was uh, your grade set? Uh, for GCSE, I had two Bs, six Cs, and a
0: D. What was the D in? German.
1: German? But, yeah, Why German? Fair, I, yeah, But, you know, with a surname like Wallacher, you'd have thought I would probably been all right at German. But to be fair, I only did German to be in um, one particular girl's class. That was the logic um, behind that particular option in,
0: in whatever old I was when I chose <laughs> so to take German. This, this was before the days of social media where you had to choose German to get a girl instead of uh, instead of messaging them. Well, <laughs> I wanted to take her to the, <laughs> the keynote
1: and um yeah so I, I had a crush on her all the way from junior school primary school high school um did german failed german never told her i had the crush on her.
0: Uh, so there we go so you you wasted, what, wasted two, two years <laughs> what was it you like last two years i assume you'd have done your, your yeah two GCSE,
1: years you? but more importantly a, a an actual gcse i wasted didn't i i could have done something more useful
0: <laughs> yeah well no t- to be fair Um, I'm sure your career hasn't depended on the grade you got in GCSEs. No, that's very true. That is true. So, you you grew up in Wales. Um, You refer to yourself as Wenglish. So, you know, my immediate question, I know you like football, is do you support England or do you support Wales? Well, (laughs) both. And I'm not ashamed to say both, but I am
1: Welsh. So therefore, if it was Wales, England, um, as it was at Euro 16, you might yeah. have won the game, but we got to the semi finals yeah. uh, You lost to Iceland. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> then, then I would be supporting Wales. Makes sense. But I grew up, my mum and dad are, um, yeah, they're very British. They're proud to be British. Um, so when I was when I was brought up, I wasn't brought up and differentiated as in, this is Welsh. This is English. This is Scottish, right? Um, and everything else. It was just well, it was nothing. We were just British. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't anything. There was no conversation about it. So when I watched the 1986 World Cup, for example, and I was watching England play World Cup, I, uh, you know, how old was I? 1986. Nine years old. Ten years old. Wasn't going to be able to work out that. England wasn't Britain, you know, they were from the Union Jacks in the crowd. So I grew up supporting England in major football tournaments. Well, to um, be
0: fair, to be fair, to be fair, just to interject, you didn't really have much choice, did you? There wasn't, there wasn't much Welsh um, uh, involvement in, uh, in major footballing tournaments back then. No, that is,
1: that is very true, yes. Yeah. Um, well, though we could have got to the United, United World Cup if, you know, if Bowen could take a penalty. And, the, you know, we had a few close shows, didn't we? So I support
0: both. I get, you know, but emotionally, um, it's more Wales. Yeah. Do you get stick for supporting both from more, well, actually both sides, I suppose, but, but certainly from the Welsh side? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't rate a great seat.
1: I, I wouldn't wear like a Wales shirt and then the next day wear an English shirt. Yeah. yeah. I certainly never wear a half and half scarf. You know, I'm not one of them. I'm not a wrong one. Yeah. You know, in, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't understand. I've never quite subscribed to the logic that you have to demonstrate your loyalty to one football team or one rugby team by showing your hatred towards another one. Mm. Um, that's not, to me, displaying the loyalty. But for me, it's, it, you know, we're all British.
0: Yeah, of course. I'll
1: support us all. I mean, the last Euros was almost a dream because everyone, well, Scotland weren't there, were they? I mean, we say about Wales not qualifying for major tournaments. I think Scotland have got a while to go. They? But, you know, I'll support all the home nations.
0: Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So uh, you you must love the Olympics then.
1: Oh well, who doesn't love an Olympics? Yeah, of course, of course.
0: <laughs> of course. So so saying that though, you're you're well, obviously that we've got the connection that we're both Tottenham fans. So um, how how do you grow up in North Wales and then support Tottenham? Because the you know the logical thing would be that you support Man United or Man, or probably not Man City, but Man United or Liverpool.
1: Well, yeah, and I suppose that's the thing. When I was growing up, everyone did support Everton, Liverpool, or Man United. I mean, let's be honest—the nineteen eighties, late seventies, eighties Liverpool fans were the original glory supporters, weren't they? Um, You're only saying
0: you're only saying this because you've left Liverpool now and work in Oxford.
1: Yeah, that's where I'm on a safe zone now.
0: (laughs) 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 But you know, and and I wanted, I, I did.
1: You Know, I wanted to support a slightly different team, and we, we used to live close to Mike England, who played for the 61 double winning team, um, and was the Welsh manager actually in the 80s before Terry Orris took over. Um, and I think that's what drove me to it. It was like, well, and we were a good team, we were a good team, you know. We did so my first game that I remember watching the Tottenham game, first one was the 82 FA Cup final replay, it was only five. Um, coming on six, what's the replay on a? Whatever, night, they did,
0: back in the day they had two, they had two finals, didn't they? They had a home and away final, didn't they?
1: Oh, no, no, not in the FA Cup. That's just because we kept drawing them.
0: Oh, um, right, okay.
1: Yeah, so we just had to have replays. We had um QPR, wasn't it, in 81 with Villa, and then um, it was QPR in 82, um, which was Terry Venables was manager of QPR as a fact for you. Really, I didn't know that. Mm. Well, you know, he went from QPR to Barcelona, a demonstration in life that is a, your career can only go up.
0: <laughs> yeah, literally. How do you do that, go from QPR to Barcelona? That's mad.
1: Well, you don't anymore, do you? Could you imagine? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah,
0: of course, of
1: course. You go from QPR to Charlton now, if you're lucky, wouldn't
0: you? Well, <laughs> well Rafa went from Real Madrid to Newcastle, didn't he? That's true, actually, yeah. That's so, true. But be there's,
1: been too, and there's been some great Welsh Tottenham players, remember? Mm. Get a uh, Bale,
0: yeah, of course, Gunter. Well, to be fair though, Pat know, now. but Bale, you would have had to have a time machine to realise you to play for Tottenham um, when you was five when you started supporting them. Um, um, so, <laughs> <we're>, <laughs> move, over the on. years, yeah, over the years. I say that again, sorry. Over the years, we've had oh. some very well Tottenham players. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, so moving on then. Um, so, like, what what did you want to do when you was growing up? Oh, a sports journalist, right? Okay, so so it was a big, big passion of your sports in general, yeah. Um, all sports. I mean, I, I used to, um, my dad used
1: to, I never saw him during the week because he was working like most dads did then, yeah. Um, and then every Saturday he'd go out, and and basically <laughs> he was going down the snooker club and he was just going to the pub and um, playing snooker with his mates on a Saturday afternoon, wasn't it? And I used to sit <laughs> for like 12 o'clock till five o'clock every Saturday watching grandstand thinking that my dad was going to come on the snooker because <laughs> i thought he was going to come on in the you know, he was going to be snooker on grandstand so i grew up watching grandstand every Saturday afternoon <laughs> with my dad to go on telly not really <laughs> was just down the pub with uncle fly having a few jars like so i sort of grew up i dislike all sports to be honest yeah so i watch anything that's a bit competitive so um so, so so yeah that's how really me me the sort of sports sessions come mm. about so what, what did you end up, what was your first job then? First job was, well, I started, um, I started my A-levels. Um, and I think, again, this sort of reflects my sort of lack of planning in life. I right. Was, you know, I want to be a sports journalist. I tell my career advisor I want to be a sports journalist. So I do, I start my A-levels in economics, um, geography and history. You know, not your three classic journalists. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, courses you know not an english in there um, and of course because i hadn't wasted a gcse on any of those i'd passed them all as well <laughs> so i could have done an english a level um so i started my a levels like september 93 or 94 or blurs into one and then i saw a job advertised for, for an apprenticeship um optical engineer mechanical engineering apprenticeship and i thought well right. my dad to engineering um and I wanted to earn money at this point. You know, I was just about to start my driving lessons. You want to buy, back then, you know, I wanted to buy a Nova SR. I wanted, I wanted a car. I wanted to be able to start going out. Yeah. Um, so I applied for this job. And um, it was quite an interesting interview because it was my first ever job interview. And it was, you know, it was an engineering company. And as <laughs> part of the interview process, you have to take something you've made. Right. Um, but I'd never made anything i'd never you know i wasn't practical and i didn't do I, ne- I didn't even do cdt for gcse you know i'd never even sawn anything yeah so um, i got my dad to make me a display cabinet <laughs> for um trophies right and then took the display cabinet with me and gave a presentation about the display cabinet about how it was to put my trophies in it
0: but from sport so it had a story to it as well um hold on a got- sec. hold on a sec. hold on a sec. You took a cabinet, like a trophy case cabinet, to oh, yeah. an interview. Yeah. Well, it was a show-and-tell
1: type interview. You were invited to bring something you've made. I'm sure most other people brought something small. And-
0: i just have to interject <laughs> again. If, if anyone is going to be interviewed by David Wallaker for any role in the future, please turn up to his office with a cabinet. Yeah but, yeah, but Jack, that's not even the worst part of the story, is it? The worst part of the story is, I turned
1: up with the cabinet and I hadn't even made it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then I get a job as an apprentice engineer. And it was three days in college and two years on the shop floor. And I wasn't even, just, I wasn't even 17 until three months later. And so I got home, realised I got the job. And said to my dad well you better tell me how to make something like that now so i went on a sort of crash course to to actually learn how to make things
0: do you reckon it, do you reckon it was just because of your communication skills from like an early age that you, that you got that then uh, i guess or, so or, i mean or was, I, or was I, the I, cabinet I, incredibly made but just just by your dad oh the, the, you know, the cabinet was all right
1: <laughs> i, mean, I <laughs> think it was the story, it was i think it was the story that went with it yeah I think, you know, but I don't. The thing is, you, you don't know. I mean, job interviews are a funny thing, anyway, aren't they? Because you don't know who you're up against. Mm. Um, and it's not like you're appointing. If you're appointing a very senior person, you're gonna you're gonna appoint the best person you can get, aren't you? Um, this was a you know a trainee. I mean, it was. It was called an apprenticeship, but it was uh, not an apprenticeships anywhere near what they mean nowadays. You know, apprenticeship nowadays are vocations. You, you know, almost get a university degree just off the apprenticeship. This was, this was like youth training scheme with a different name on, wasn't it? Right. Um, so it might have been it's absolutely dreadful.
0: It was just a way to pay everyone absolute pittance for three years while they trained, basically.
1: Yeah, but enough, you know, but it, you know when I was 16 years old, it was my first pay packet was um, after tax. It was £75 a week. Um, you know, seventy-five pounds a week when you're sixteen, no mortgage. Yeah, you know, there's it was, it was a lot of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, back in that day, of course it was. Yeah,
1: yeah. So they drop you on the shop floor, show you how to do it, train you, go through some rough health and safety, and then um that's it. You just you just crack on, and it, you know, I I did struggle because, as I say, I hadn't been practical and I hadn't really tested myself in school. And stretched myself. I'd been within my comfort zone. So when I say it was easy, maybe that's the wrong choice of word. Yeah. I didn't find it was testing me. So I became a bit mentally lazy. And then I'm thrust into an environment, you know, where I'm a 17 or 16, 17 year old lad in a shop full of 30, 40 year old men mm. doing a, a profession that I've blagged an interview for, or probably for the wrong reasons. You know, this is their livelihoods and i had done it to earn some money for the beer. And going to college to study maths and physics and the engineering disciplines I I was I I did I struggled but you know you you adapt you knuckle down you think well I've either got to nail this or I've got to put my hands up and say I can't do it and I thought I don't want to quit so put my head down and sort of started really I wouldn't say I was starting to get brilliant at it but I was starting to become competent engineer Mm. um starting to get some qualifications behind me and then I got injured playing rugby um, and hurt my back and you know as you know jack i'm you know uh, the one thing i'm not short of is height. Yeah, so, um, so. how tall are you six or seven and three quarters same height as peter crouch nine stone heavier <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I heard a podcast the other day he, harry redknapp was on peter crouch's podcast um and when i can't remember what like, harry signed him I, I think it might have been a qpr um, I might not I don't think it actually was can't remember but anyway the, the chairman at the time said why am I buying a basketball player <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so go on so you said you hurt your back
1: yeah um, so I hurt my back and because the um, Foggo was the name of the lad that worked on the um, the shift opposite so he was called Foggo because his name his name was Foggo so it it was quite a, a, an ill thought out nickname and <laughs> was, so Foggo worked out on the opposite shift I'm six foot seven, and he was, um, I think he was like four foot nine or something, five foot, you know, very short. And the problem was is that they needed to raise the machine for me because of the injuries in my back, But if they did that, then it was too high for Foggo. Um, so they said, well, you're going to have to go and work in IT for a couple of months while your back sorts itself out." So I went upstairs to, you know, what was proper back office then, yeah. and um, went up to the IT department thinking, all oh, right, here we go, two months up here. Um, that was the summer of '96. So bring it back to football. That was the week that the German, that we beat the Dutch right. four-one at the Euros.
0: I love how you um, said we. I love how you said we.
1: Well, we. Well, the funny thing about that was, of course, the we. You know, we were 4 0 up before the Dutch scored, and that goal not the not the Scottish out, didn't it? Which is, you know, sums up Scottish-looking football. <laughs> and the um, yeah, so that week it was, and I went up thinking, well, I'll be here for a couple of months, and 24 years later, here I am.
0: Yeah, well there we go. Well I'll I'll come to your, your um kind of career um in a sec. Um but before I move on to that, I wanna talk about um because I wanna I wanna go quite in depth in, in terms of kind of your, your journey to, to becoming a CIO or a Chief Digital Officer. Um before I move on to that, I wanna talk about some of your bugbears. Um because I know you've got a few and I know you've got a particular one about your name. Oh, uh, yes, yes. So what is your name? <laughs> David and what is not your name Dave right so for anyone <laughs> that works in say health as it's like a health tech supplier and you start an email with Dave or a conversation with Dave you're going to not make a sale because i made the mistake of calling him dave which i was very quickly reminded my name is david it is. Well, I, I didn't speak to my mum for two weeks during COVID lockdown because she called me Dave. You know, <laughs> I,
1: I'm, I'm quite consistent on this. <laughs>
0: what, so what is it about Dave that annoys you?
1: Well, there's, more, there's lots of things, Jack. But, you know, it, it, I'm christened David. David is my name. So Dave's just like a lazy way of saying it, isn't it? But it also, it just, it reminds me of Only Fools and Horses, you know, with Rodney. He's like, <laughs> you're right, Dave. We're going
0: to be millionaires, Dave. Like, is, <laughs> we're we're going to be millionaires, Rodney, isn't it?
1: It's like, you know, and that's not that's. I've got nothing against people who are called Dave. Don't get me wrong. I think Dave's a great name, but it's not my name. My name's David. So it it it, it has to be David. And it just bothers me because you know I've got a surname which I have to constantly spell. Um, that gets misspelt all the time. You know, random letters added, random letters
0: removed. So you get used to having to spell your surname. Um, See, I find your I surname like, really. It's like it just as it sounds. Wallet occur?
1: Yeah, but some people put a C in there, so they think I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a wall licker.
0: Ah, right, wall licker, yeah. Um,
1: and, and, you know, pay me, I'm not. <laughs> don't like to take the taste of concrete. <laughs> Dusty and, mouth. Okay.
0: <laughs> so, no, so, but I think, you know, that
1: is just the number one bag back, because I think it's quite important. You know, my, my parents christened me. I've grown
0: up with that name.
1: You should call me that name. You know, your name's Jack. You wouldn't like it if I just suddenly called you
0: Steve, would you? No, but everyone loves to put an s on the end of my name jack jacobs um and Once it's oh, so annoying because my <laughs> name and and and, and I've, my granddad died probably when i was i don't know maybe 12 um 13 like that but I, one thing that's always stuck of with him he hated being called mr jacobs um um but yeah i don't know yeah but so i so i completely resonate with with you about the name thing because just a small change but highly highly annoying because it's Quite simply, not you know. So, what what other bugbears have you got? Oh, I've got a few. I mean, they're a bit, you,
1: you know, they're personal bugbears, aren't they? You know, they're, they're things that are unique to you. That yeah, that, that, you know, so they might not resonate necessarily. But I think milk bottles,
0: Jack. If I'm honest, milk milk bottle lids. Right, um, on. where where are you going with this? Because I am like, I wasn't expecting milk bottle bottles to get mentioned here. It just drives me absolutely bonkers that we can't
1: have some universal colouring agreement for milk bottle tops, right? Now, you're going to say, but we do, Dave. Right?
0: We do. Is we've right? got we've got green,
1: blue, and red. Yes. That's fine if you just want full-fat milk, semi skimmed milk, or whatever the other one is, right? Yeah. But when
0: the, you want what's, what's the red one? Milk, the red ones, what's, what's that one? Is that the
1: 1% one? I don't know, because I don't drink them, you see. Right. So I have 1% milk. Right. And 1% milk is a different lid colour in Sainsbury's, the Tesco's, to Co-op, to Morrison's. Every single one's got a different colour lid. So I end up having to pick up the milk bottle because I can never remember which shop I'm in. Um, you know, which one, you know, what colour. It's not like I've dedicated myself to remembering this. I'm not going to go on Mastermind with a specialist subject of milk <laughs> bottle. So I have to. There's only so much space in your mind palace, isn't there? So then you've got to you've got to lose something. I'm not going to remember milk bottle colorless So I think to spend an inordinate amount of time in supermarkets reading labels, going, "Oh no, that's semi-skimmed." Oh no, what, no.
0: what other colours are there? I maybe it's because I don't drink any other milk than semi-skimmed milk, and the kids and um, well Nala um has has full fat. um So the only what other colours are there apart from red? Well, there's your universal red, green, blue. So
1: full-fat blue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, green is um, semi-skimmed, and red will be... I don't know what red is. I mean, it was it's... Anyway, mine is... It, mine's different. Maybe mine is red in one of the supermarkets. Maybe that's why I've thrown it in. You know I mean? it's, it's, it's just mildly annoys to me. One of my first things, if I come prime minister, would be to, to make sure it's universal, the to, to colour to top of a milk bottle. So I think it's that important, honestly. And then I'll probably move on to... Packets of crisps that put salt and vinegar as green. Salt and vinegar should be blue. But oh, you know, no, that's, Walker's that's is
0: green. Happened. I think you've got to go as, as Walker's is going to be um, as as the standard colour.
1: No, Walker's are just wrong. Salt and vinegar is blue.
0: Is McCoy's salt and vinegar blue? I think McCoy. Yeah. McCoy, oh, I Pring- don't know. Pringles. Pringles is because the green ones. Um, uh, it's onion sweet and cream,
1: chive, isn't it? Chives and yes, sour, yeah, yeah. sour cream
0: and chives, is Yeah, but yeah, but I just find
1: with milk bottles, I just find it really annoying. I just think, well, what's the point if they're not all the same?
0: <laughs> well, there we go. Just drink a normal milk, and then you won't have a look.
1: <laughs> well, there is that. There is that. I mean, I'm not entirely sure why I have to have one percent milk. Maybe I'm just. I've, maybe I've got a bit of lactose intolerance, but only one percent
0: worth. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk to me about your email box as well, because. I know that when I speak to people with a similar job title to you, CIOs and so on, um, I actually turn that, I think anyone that's a senior leader within an NHS trust, not just applicable to senior IT leaders, but you are absolutely happy. Your email box is peppered, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it's incessant, mate. And I wouldn't mind, but half of them I try
1: and um, unsubscribe from them. Um, or how just, many emails do you
0: get a day? To, just like that, that fr- from everyone, from people in your trust, people trying to sell to you, things you need advice on, etc. How, how many roughly emails do you get a day? Um, I'd say at least three to four hundred a day. Cool. Um, and I'll well, tell you now,
1: I'll cool. tell you now. It's, it's so it's a Thursday today, isn't it? Yeah. So on Tuesday morning, I got my mailbox down to zero, unread. Yep. Uh, not by reason, just right mouse click, mark all the order,
0: right? <laughs> Control A delete or <laughs> Control O mark red.
1: <laughs> so that was Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. 10 yep. o'clock right? So that's two working days later. And I've got 651 unreads now.
0: Plus the ones that you have
1: read? Plus the ones I have read, plus the ones I have responded to. So I've had
0: 700 to 800 emails in the last two days. Jeez. So quite quite a lot then, yeah. And and how many of those do you think have to be replied to like as a percentage? So you get three four hundred a day. How many of those do you think have to be replied to or, or need to be replied to? Half a dozen, if that. Really. So so in terms of you know, let's say suppliers that have solutions, um, you know, I hope you know I think the audience will be a mixture of. You know people like yourself, seniors within the NHS and others in the NHS um, but also you know suppliers to the NHS as well um, you know perhaps perhaps an opportunity to give them a bit of advice like what's the best way of of communicating with you because I think along the short of it is a lot of people do certainly believe they do but in many cases do actually have solutions that can help um, massively reduce costs or improve efficiencies or whatever buzzword else you want to throw at it at. Um, but, but especially now because of COVID where there is a need for a new normal, I know, I know that cold calling wouldn't work because I, I, well, you, I'm pretty sure you've got my number saved and you never answer the phone to me, let alone a number that isn't saved from your phone. So cold calling, let's, let's just rule that angle out. Um, emailing you, you get absolutely hounded. So it's, you know, Realistically, going to be like finding a needle in a haystack stack in terms of getting a reply from you for for a, for a supplier. So, you know how how should suppliers engage with you? Well,
1: it's a tough one, that, isn't it? Because, as you say, you've got a product that you think I can benefit from. Um, mm. I, I might need that product. I might not need that product. You don't know that. Hmm. Um, I might not have the money to buy it even if I do need it or I might not have the resources or capacity to be able to deliver it even if I had the money and I needed it so there has to be sort of six seven eight things that have to align before a conversation progresses and then of course remember you bogged down a little bit there when you get into NHS procurement Rex. so you can't just pick up the phone and go oh do you know it's a really good solution love it I'll buy it you know you've got to be able to demonstrate your value for money in your market testing and your evaluation, et cetera. And we can have an opinion on whether that stifles innovation um, or not, but, you know, the rules are there. So it's very rare that you can just buy something anyway, even in a scenario where all the circumstances align and, and match up. And, and I do respect the fact that salespeople have, you know, it's a tough job. You know, you judge on your last quarter or your, or your last reporting period. You got, you know, you got bills to pay. You have got ambitions in life. You have got a boss breathing down your neck. You know, you got a solution which I can, you know, but you know, it's just a bit bland and boring to send an email, isn't it? And then to send another email two days later to say you're checking up whether I seen the first one. You know, like, <laughs> you know, there's a good chance I didn't. They um, get
0: they get filed for me those ones in the uh, in the B one N folder. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I just
0: I don't know is the right
1: answer because.
0: The thing is, as you go
1: to some of the conferences, um, general conferences now, and the, you know, suppliers just, you know, they whip out the cards and they've got these products and they want to speak to you. And it's not that, you, that you're just saying it to get them away. You just don't have the time. And this is why I think the the, the issue is, if i got a problem, I will go out and seek and find answers to my problem. That doesn't mean that I think that I know everything. So therefore, if I don't know it's a problem, it's not. Or that there's not a better way of doing it. And maybe it's just about, you know, and I'm not saying it because I'm on your podcast yet, but, you know, it's your sort of events where really that bridges the gap between the two. Because I can sit there and go, oh, yeah, that's a different way of doing something. I can hear other people have done it. You can bridge that. You can have that relationship. You can have that conversation. And then actually, when an email comes in from somebody you've met and you've eyeballed and you've seen, and you've referenced, it's going to gain a little bit more importance in my sort of, oh, I must respond to that, than, okay, someone's offered me, they can change the world. And so I think it's about building some form of relationship, but don't give up on the cold emails. You know, I joke about them, but, you know, and yeah, they're annoying, but I have bought things from them before, and... You know, you can't always line up to different ways of doing it. And I would rather, at least, I know that I'm going to get a certain percentage of my emails to junk emails. You know, for Blimey O'Reilly, don't shift from emails to direct messaging me on Twitter or something. You know, because it'll be like, oh God, I'm going to start muting direct replies. Keep, keep chugging away, really.
0: But I can see you like you've dug yourself a hole here, and you, you, you're rambling to get out, thinking, oh no, what have I done? They're not going to email me. They're not going to call me. So now my My like social media space is going to get hounded. Yeah, I'm at Matthew
1: Hancock. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, brilliant, brilliant. (laughs) Talk to me about some of your your first leadership role. So, so you um, was your first role within the NHS? Was it for Cheshire and Wirral?
1: Cheshire and Wirral mental health. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, talk to me about that. So, so, so is that was that your first job in in uh for the nhs or was that your first ever job
1: oh no, no that was 10 years after my uh, first it job but it was okay. my first job in the nhs yeah
0: um,
1: and i i applied for it because at the time there was lots of media coverage about the national program for it and how bad it was um specifically and i saw this job come up and i thought well it can't be as bad as they say um and it was a two-year fixed term contract when i originally applied for it which you know to come from a substantive jobs to fixed term but i thought well I'm going to go and see how good it is. Can you make a difference? Et cetera. Went on a two-year fixed-term contract um, and just immediately fell in love with the NHS, really. And within six months of being there, the contract had been made substantive. And, you know, 16, 17 years later, here I am.
0: Yeah, you've never left since.
1: No, but I wouldn't leave now.
0: No. Well, I was... Um... I was going to ask this a bit later, but perhaps I'll ask it now. And then I'll come back to the point I'm going to make about, I want to ask you about kind of your first leadership roles and stuff. But as you mentioned it, so, I, you know, you could, you could clearly probably earn more in the private sector as a CIO, with the responsibility that you've got with the size of the organization. That it is, you know, so, so, so money mustn't be your driver. What, what, what is it about the NHS that's kept you loyal for so long? Well,
1: let's be honest, money isn't my driving factor, no. But on the same token, I wouldn't come to work and do it for free. So, nice. you know, there, there is a financial consideration. I think it's, you know, I've worked for engineering companies, I've worked for transport companies, I've worked for financial companies um, before I came into the NHS, where essentially the driving purpose of those organisations was to maximise profit for its shareholders and return that in dividends. For, for those people who invested in the in the stocks of those companies and they were it was great and don't don't get me wrong you know i enjoyed the money i was earning when i was in the private sector but the the nhs it, it gives you a purpose it gives you a um sense of achievement you know some of the stuff that we've done whether it be i mean let's pick a something for covid because that's you know that's fresh in everybody's mind at the moment but you know we deployed I mean, this isn't rocket science-type digital stuff, but, you know, deployed at pace, the patient entertainment solution so that the patients could FaceTime or the equivalent of a vendor's product. Um, video home, because obviously we weren't allowed uh, visitors into the hospital. Um, you know, that wasn't particularly difficult apart from securing the kit during the middle of um, a pandemic when everyone's ordering a lot of the kit. Mm. But the sense of hearing the first video call with a grandparent was, a video calling her grandchildren that she hadn't seen for three weeks and the streets of delight on the kids on the other side or arranging a family to be able to say goodbye to their loved ones on the video piece, gives you a sense of purpose that you're doing something more wholesome than lining the pocket necessarily of shareholders and the ethos of the NHS and its, its place in our social conscience I think is very special and so for all the tea in China I wouldn't leave the NHS
0: yeah no it makes sense and i think you've put that really nicely and you've, you've given a really nice example there um of, of, of why you do that so so going back to, to what we were talking about before then so um so you worked at cheshire and rural um mental health um trust a partnership what, what, what when did you did you was you in a leadership role there or did you did you evolve into a leadership role from there
1: uh, when i originally went it was as a technical project manager Um, to deploy their electronic patient record system. Um, 2004, March 2004, I started. Um, Within, like I say, when I originally went there, they didn't have an IMT function as such, or an informatics function. Um, They had that outsourced to the different um, organisations that existed back then. So in certain areas of the patch, it was covered by one PCT and another by another PCT and another by a health informatics service. And there was no internal informatics function so the brief that i was given was build this electronic patient record but what or well not build deploy it but what became quickly apparent was where well, you could put that in but you need people to be able to develop it to be able to take the data out of it to be able to do stuff with it to be able to support the organization mm. so it became obvious very quickly that the trust needed its own internal im t function and then the role morphed into the um, head of it in effect to create that department which was yeah. you know it was a dream role because i was given a bunch of money i was given an empty nice um office block uh, set of offices and i was told to recruit a it department and we did it from scratch oh, and um, uh, so we did that in for sort of a couple of years i was head of it and um, a colleague of mine was head of sort of information and then he left to go um Somewhere. I, I can't remember who went now, it's so long ago, but he he left, so I sort of approached my director and I was like, well, you don't need to replace him, give me both. So I came uh, uh, did head you of him did,
0: did you get both salaries?
1: If yeah, you wish. <laughs> 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 but the, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I became a head of service in 2006, so, yeah, go and you then it says... Back,
0: back a sec what what an incredible first role within the nhs
1: you know you're not quite. Uh, you've given a I'm, I'm totally lucky that... go, on,
0: go on david it's yours
1: yeah i mean and, and this is about life sometimes isn't it you know there's there's a, a sliding doors moment about why did i pick up the jobs northwest that particular week because that's how you did it back then there was no online job website mm. you know so I'd bought Jobs Northwest saw this job in the NHS and thought oh I'm gonna apply for that and applied I mean to be honest when I was invited for the interview I'd kind of forgotten I'd applied because it'd been quite a, a while between the application and the, the shortlisting.
0: What the NHS um, being slow to react? Never.
1: You can't say that anymore Jack. COVID us- we're gonna get on to COVID <laughs>
0: we're gonna get on to COVID
1: <laughs> yeah so and then it's about life's always about being in the right place at the right time, isn't it? you know, Definitely. but then you, you there's you, there's luck in life, but then there's also you drive your own luck, so the opportunity came up to have the conversation and say, "Well, can I do both from become the head of informatics um, but if I hadn't done a good job at the head of i t role, that conversation wouldn't have gone very far would it so yeah. uh, you know you take the opportunities when they present themselves in life, but then you've got to position yourselves to be considered for them as well
0: yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And so, so just, just before that then, so just so I understand the complete, so was you a, 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 an IT PM before or, or was you a a coder? What was your tech background?
1: Um, Well, I started off when I went to the engineer, when I did my apprenticeship, I did two years in optical engineering Mm. and then I, I'd injured, I injured myself playing rugby, um, hurt my back. So I went up to the IT department while my back recovered. That was in the summer of 2000, uh, summer of 1996. Yeah. I went up there and I never came back. So my first job was as a network um, or as a help desk analyst. Then it morphed into a network analyst. Then I came to London or down south and did more network and security type roles. Um, that then morphed into um, sort of more server. This was at the point when really NT4 was um, coming out of life and and. Uh, modern windows operating systems were coming in moved into the server space yeah. and then did one role as a project manager before i applied for the cheshire and wirral role as a technical project manager
0: sure sure so so what was that working on like cisco equipment and things like that before
1: yeah i mean the only thing that really is this that i was working on was the the layer three um type switches i mean although saying that the first first network i installed was a bnc type connection which i'm not sure whether you know what a bnc connection is but no you wouldn't word. recognize it on you wouldn't recognize it with your current um network connection so you know i my my first job in it was deploying windows 95 you, you know this is this is going back so i got reasonably good technical backing in network skills um security and servers mm. um, but if you put me in front of any of those now because the world's moved on a bit then I would probably struggle. And because my first director, Jack, um, he was a guy called Mike. And he was quite an inspiration really. He was one of those people that I you know, they often say you remember your your best bosses. And I and I certainly remember Mike. Um he had uh, he he was he was both intimidating and inspiring at the same time and he had sort of Schofield type um silver hair. Yeah. And he'd been in the yeah. business for years and years and years he had a three-digit british computer society membership number you know this is back the original 60s when they started or probably early when it started um the man was a legend but although we all respected him and we we looked up to him we we didn't take the mic in a horrible way but we used to call him mainframe mike because he had grown up in the 70s and 80s on technology that we didn't recognize at this point because here was us deploying 32-bit operating systems we thought we were the you know the bomb and so we used to say oh you know well that's mainframe mic and the technology now has moved on so much from where i started from i'm probably mainframe mic
0: no you're, you're probably 90 <clears throat> windows 95 wallaca
1: <laughs> W-A-L-L. <laughs>
0: um Awesome. So so, so jumping from there back to kind of then your first leadership role or, or just past, so you went from um, Cheshire and Wirral. Did you go into the, to the Welsh um, Ambulance Service from there?
1: Yeah, I went to Ambulance Service from there for a number of reasons. I mean, one, I'd been at CWP at that point for about six years and, you know, that's quite a long time. I like to work on, um, bring everything back to football, but I like to work on four-year cycles. Okay. Because um, I, I think four years is how long it takes to you know, go in somewhere, identify what the problems are, come up with a plan, deploy what you're doing, and then start making a difference. And I don't like to leave anyone until I've made a difference necessarily. Um, But I was outgrowing the role at CWP, and I'd applied for a couple of jobs, speculative, and I'd got to the final two in each on interviews, and they were sort of band nine jobs. And um, each time I hadn't got the job, because they were saying that it was too much of a... um, and I don't know how accurate this is. They could have just been polite, of so course. They could have just bombed the interview. But they were saying it was too much of a, a jump from the band I was on at the time to a nine. You know, yeah. there was a concern about that. What band was you on at the time then? Um, I was on an eight B. As a as a head band, informatic. what sorry? An eight B. Right. Okay. So, and I wanted the band nine, you know, associate director or uh, or director type roles. I was also aware of the fact that I you know, because I had got mental health at this stage, it was almost, um, it was very difficult to try and penetrate the acute sector. You know, yeah. it, So the jobs yeah. I was applying and getting shortlisted for were mental health jobs or community roles. And then um, I took the move to Welsh Ambulance because it was a sideways move in the context of, it was no longer the information or the performance or the data and it was purely IT ops. Um, but it was a higher band, and it was it was a national role. Um, so one it, it it cited me with the context of you know an ambulance is fundamentally operationally driven. Mm. You know, the you know if the radio system goes down, that's kind of a big problem sort of thing. So I quite like that pressure that comes with those sorts of working environments, as opposed to the mental health trust, which was a little bit you know less pressured with regard to the optic. But also it was a higher banded role. So my intention was, well, if I can go there and enjoy it and get the development and prove myself that I can operate at that level, then the band nine jobs aren't suddenly a big gap. Yeah. So I went there with the intention of staying for, as I say, for the four years. But while I I was about two and a half years in, um, the the, the CIO role came up at Liverpool Women's Hospital, um, went for it, got it, and... And that was the end of my Welsh ambulance career.
0: Is is that was that um because to me so it was was your job title the national IT manager in the Welsh.
1: Yeah, it yeah. was national IT operations manager, which was the equivalent of um, associate director of IT. Okay.
0: At the time. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So. so
1: but each of us always has different naming conventions, don't they, for the same job?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, well, actually, we'll get onto the naming convention because I want to understand what your job title means because you've got, as far as I know, a completely unique job title to you and, um, Oxford. Um, but we'll, we'll get onto that in a sec. So was that a big jump from, from going from a, uh, an AD level it, um, director to, or a national it uh, manager to, to a CIO, or is it just the perhaps the chief part of the job title that makes it seem that way?
1: Um, Bit of both really. It wasn't a big job, a jump in competency. Um, it was there's a higher expectation or there was on the CIO role at the women's with regards to, you know, it was operating just below boards level. Um, so reporting into the Director of Finance and you know, she was amazing. And I'm still in contact with her now. Um, but you know, she was a tough taskmaster. You could give her whatever you gave her came about a red pen on it. You know, it was she was she was very prescriptive of what she wanted. Mm-hmm. So there was there's probably, there was probably higher standards um, of the quality of some of the reports and the narrative and the assurance that was required to be provided. But from a competency perspective, no, not really. I think the thing that I found difficult was I had gone from a mental health trust where I had the information and the IT to an ambulance service where I only had the IT So now my first acute role where I had the IT and the information, but I'd never worked in acute information before. Mm. And there are different mm. data sets and different, you know, I would never had to work until my role at the Women's with um, things like clock stop rules and eighteen week pathways and all that sort of stuff. So there was a a, a knowledge curve that I had to go through. But at the end of the day, you, you know, a data set for one function is no more complex than a data set for another. It's just a different set of skills. So I, I wouldn't say it was too big a jump. Um, and technically, it was it was equitable.
0: Sure, sure. So so that was that wasn't the joint role at that point though. that was just the women's wasn't it
1: yeah so it was just the women's uh, 2013 when i started there um and then the opportunity came up again it's about being in the right place at the right time isn't it so the cio of the royal liverpool um james norman who's now at dell as their yeah. um cio at dell he left uh, the royal liverpool march april 2014 Their chief executive had sent an email around all the chief executives in Liverpool to say, is anybody interested in having a joint appointment to the CIO? Um, My director of finance and chief executive forwarded that on and said, that sounds a good idea, that'd be good for you and good for us. Um, So I expressed a interest in it. And then um, nothing happened. It went really quiet for about six, seven months. And then um, just Christmas 2014, early December, 2014, uh, the Royal came over and said, right, how can we make a joint role work? And then I started in January, 2015.
0: Makes sense. Ah, awesome. Awesome. So, so talk to me about kind of leadership there and what it, what it means for you, because I think, yeah, you know, I don't know, I know you in the sense of, you know, I'd like to say that we're friends now we've, we've worked together and collaborated on a number of my events, but you know, we, we have a mutual, um, A mutual connection in in Tottenham, and and we talk a lot about that, and text a lot about that, and and other things. Um, But I can't imagine. uh, You know, what what are you like as a leader? What's your leadership style?
1: Um, Well, I'm not a I'm not a um, I'm not somebody that stands at the end of people's desk and points fingers and demands. You know, I'm very much a. uh, My belief is that you empower people to be able to do the job to the best of their ability. Um, I see my role. To provide the cover for the staff to be able to one develop, two um, flourish, and three make mistakes, mm. because you can't you can't learn about making mistakes. And you know I think that the part of the privilege that comes with having the chief at the front of your job title, or as a senior leader actually, not even a chief, it, this applies throughout, is you know if something goes wrong, then I'll take the flak for it. But my job is to make sure that it kind of doesn't go wrong. And I think for me, leadership is really quite simple. Um, is in my principles I think leadership itself is hard Um, but fundamentally leadership is about identifying the potential in people they haven't identified in themselves yet and given a structure and an operating model that enables both the individual to do the best the department to do the best and the organization to do the best Um, you know you, you can't necessarily choose your boss but you can choose who you follow and I think that's I, I like to think that's my leadership style. So I like to think I'm there if they require the help. I will provide guidance if they seek it. Of course, there's times when I'm going to stop things. So, well, that's a bit. That's a bad idea. Let's stop that. Um, but I'm not. I, I would say I'm um, a developer yeah. of people. And you know, I've I've had four four of my last five direct reportees are now CIOs or deputy CIO. Yeah, so I
0: like curious, to think it
1: works.
0: Yeah, I think I think you summarise that really nicely. And um, do you? Don't you know, you you mentioned the point that was the major point, and actually from my part last podcast with James Devine, he said something very similar to you. It's about seeing something in someone that they don't see in themselves currently. So do you go to a point where you tell them what you see, or do you leave it for them to work that out for themselves and just give them a framework for them to do that?
1: I would say more the latter than the former. You know, fundamentally, you know, if somebody's got areas of development that's below where it's expected to be for their role, whether that's um, emotional intelligence or technical skills or written skills or communication skills, I think, you know, this is where an effective appraisal system and development cycle and talent management comes in, isn't it? Is we also sit down and say, look, do you know what? This is everything you've done on this, let's say, project. Everything you've done on this project is brilliant, but this report doesn't quite cut it. So but it's about managing those people's expectations so that you're not just giving them a report back covered in red pen and saying, redo it, redo it, redo it. And it's like running up for 10 miles, Marines, you know, they, they run around with their backpacks on and they get to the end and then the colonel goes running up for 10 miles. Oh, yeah. It's not that sort of push and drive piece. I think you need to be able to constructively help people. But I think it's also enabling people to feel confident enough and a psychological safe space enough to grow into their own skin in the role in effect and learn what they're good at and what they're not good at. because the, you know one of the key things for me in management rather than leadership is always appoint people that report into you that are better than you are Mm. and Mm. you know so i know what my skills are and i know what i'm less good at so you know i'm not a particular good uh good it's probably in english but i'm not particularly a great wordsmith so i know I can I can write a great strategy, but I need somebody else to be able to take that and translate it into something that means something to everybody else. I don't have that skill set. So if I'm appointing somebody that is to lead, um, you know, a, a strategic review, I'm going to appoint somebody that's got better skills in that area than I have. Mm. Um, and also it's about the talent management and succession planning. I think it's really important. I like to think that you know, in three years' time, and I've been at Oxford for well, three and a half years time, and I've been there for four years. I'd like to think that there'll be at least one, two or three people who could confidently apply for and get my job if I was to leave. And if, if there aren't those people there, then I think I will have failed.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a really nice way of looking at it. I think it's a really, really good way of looking at it. So, so, you know, in Liverpool, you, you achieve so much. And I actually watched a, a YouTube video that you put on and I, Knowing you, I don't know how comfortable you would have been doing it, but it was quite good actually. It looked like, was it? Rec- quite was good a actually. Is
1: that, is, that a, is that a tacit compliment there, Jack?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think that knowing you, you know, what, did you do a video in front of like a green screen and then use like pointing to the left corner and on in this side we've achieved this and it means that we've done that? Do you remember recording that video? Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Do so I remember recording it? I still have you, nightmares about it.
0: Yeah. See, I knew I knew that you wouldn't have enjoyed that. But I thought it came come across brilliantly and it was three years ago. Oh, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was 2017. I think that was so probably, I don't know when it was recorded in 2017, but around three years ago. And I thought that that we actually for three years ago, how much the time has changed. That was a bloody brilliant. Um, and it goes through three years ago, you know, what you've achieved and what you're planning to achieve and the, 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 the tone that you were setting basically for the next kind of 18 months. Um, so, so yeah, you achieved a lot. What what are what are some of the kind of major, most things you're proud of that you achieved, you know, in Liverpool?
1: Um, uh, well, there's, there's so much. But I think the collective major success that we had, because it's not my success. Of course. You know, it's just my name on the top of it. I don't think there's anything I personally did individually that drove something through. I was very lucky in Liverpool to have, um, a very good team around me, and but I think it was probably the sepsis. You know, we had an issue in the hospital where we weren't um, in the upper percentile for either um, discovering which patients required the antibiotics within the one hour or administrating the antibiotics. And yeah at the time, yeah. I mean, I must confess, when the whole sepsis thing came up, I remember watching a QI, a quality improvement presentation about it in the trust, and I. I I genuinely didn't know what sepsis was. I thought sepsis was like when you—I thought that's what did Bob Marley. You know, I thought it was like when you get an infection in the wound. I didn't quite—I didn't yeah. didn't know anything about it. It wasn't something that appeared on my radar. And of course, it was getting lots more um, prevalence at the time and, and discussion. And we we watched this presentation about why as an organisation we were struggling. With. And we had a very in, um, inspiring uh, consultant of infectious disease at the trust at the time, who basically wanted to transform the pathway for how we delivered sepsis care in the in the hospital and and it it was such a compelling inspiring presentation the board we signed up to it and he started implementing these quality improvement service improvements around it and then when we were watching it we we thought we thought well hang on a minute we've got some technology here that was already being successfully deployed as part of the paper free that we can adapt a little bit to help you here you know it's an often quoted statement but it's often quoted because it's true you know you can digitize a bad process but you're just gonna make a bad process quicker this guy has gone through and redesigned a really effective pathway and a process and people and skills but didn't have the effective technology at the end so we designed him the effective technology that pumped on the top of it and then the thing blew I mean it went. it, it was bonkers we went from you know lowest percentiles to highest percentiles we had research studies done on it and ultimately it was quoted as a reference study in the long-term plan um
0: and how many lives
1: well i believe the research would indicate a couple a couple of hundred
0: wow wow that's it it's incredible it's an incredible achievement
1: and but again you know you feel privileged because my role is to give the clinicians the tools that helps them make an uh Informed decisions about their patients. It's never going to replace the doctor. You know this idea that we're going to end up with a bunch of robot doctors. You know it's preposterous. But the we, we need to be able to inform the doctors. What, all the boxes. What people say. You know they say it's about the technology, not about the people. Well, it's, mm. it's, it's, uh, sorry, about the people, not the technology. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, kind of yeah, right? I i <laughs> it's completely wrong. Yeah. But the um, it, you know this this was true. It was truly co-designed. You, you know the sepsis nurses, the infectious disease doctors, the deputy medical director. They designed what this system looked like. And then I had a bunch of very, very talented developers who built it. And it, it was really quite a special project. And when we touched on earlier about, you know, why, why do I work in the NHS? I think that's probably, to date, the pinnacle one, that you look at it and you think, wow, a couple of hundred people didn't die there. You know, th- there would have been a significant number without the technology bit on the top because of all the work that the clinicians have done and the transformation of the process and the practices. Yeah. The avoided variation, but what we gave them was a tool that really enabled their vision, and um, yeah, that's probably my proudest one is simple
0: Amazing, amazing. So, so, so on the back of that, and I, and, and I was going to ask this question in a different way. I was going to ask that, you know, was it was it hard to leave Liverpool? But I think from what you said before about you know on the four year cycle type thing, where you know you, you ultimately want to leave once you feel like you've made the big difference and you feel forful, fulfilled in that role, personally fulfilled in that role. Um, I, I, I suppose that's why it was probably a good time for you to move to Oxford.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the time was right. I'd been in the joint role for over four years. I'd been in Liverpool for um, six and a bit years. I had had offers to leave during my time there. To both NHS and private sector. Um, both very very attractive offers um, and both weren't immediately dismissed you know there was a lot of thought that went into them. Um, the timing wasn't right for either of those options um, and there was lots of reasons for that you know having a child halfway through this the, the process was one I was quite emotionally uh, attached to the women's hospital um, and also we were building the new Royal um, and I wanted to have on the CV that we'd built a digital first massive hospital but then you know Carilia went pop and that yeah. was sort of not the end of that but at the end of that from a timeline perspective yeah. Cool. Um, and yeah. the time was right to leave it was the right time to go we were we were going through the merger with Entry. I had done everything that I wanted to do in the vision that you saw on the on the green presentation apart yeah. from opening the new hospital um, and I was looking at the merger, thinking the merger is really exciting, actually. There's really good opportunities from it. But what I would find myself doing for the next couple of years is redoing what I had done previously, just at the Royal to get both hospitals up to the same level. And I, I didn't feel as though I had the appetite or drive to go through that again. And it was probably right for the organisation, right for me. Um, it, then I moved on. But the, I only applied for the Oxford role. You know, the Oxford Roll came up. I applied for the Oxford Roll. I took the Oxford Roll. You know, there was... I've only ever applied while I've been in post in Liverpool, the Welsh Ambulance, or Chester. And if you discount the jobs that I ultimately went to, I've only ever applied for um, three, four jobs. Two Mm. of those I didn't get in Chester and Wirral because of the band issue. Mm. Um, And two others. I, 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 I don't often find myself distracted by wanting to move but Oxford was just too big a great an opportunity yeah
0: yeah, of course it of course you know so, so, and, so and
1: even if the, if, if the building hadn't gone pop you know and the building was still about to open I would have still taken the Oxford job
0: yeah yeah it's it's got it's got to be up there with with probably some of the biggest digital roles in the NHS right the job you're in now does it get much bigger than that
1: well I think you know, it, size is a, is a question of subjectivity isn't it i think it's it's certainly complex it's certainly large um but it's also but it's the, the it's
0: also the the um the prestigiousness of the organization
1: oh absolutely you know it, it's a it's it, it's oxford you know i could go anywhere in the world to any conference and say i work at oxford university i know where i am yeah of course exactly um, so You know that's great for me from a personal self-satisfaction process but actually it's also really good for oxford because we open doors and conversations as do other prestigious organizations based upon who we are and the opportunity of people wanting to be associated with us Um, so yeah from an organizational perspective there would there would only be two or three in the united kingdom that i would count in that level of and I'm not going to name the others, but Oxford to me was always number one. Yeah. So when it came up, I was like, I've got to apply for that. Yeah, cool. um, and then I got it.
0: So, so what's your, what's your role then? So you're the Chief Digital and Partnerships Officer. So, talk to me about your role, because because as far as I'm and correct me if I'm wrong, it's completely unique to you and your and, and Oxford, isn't it?
1: I think it is in the context of merging the digital and the partnerships piece. So, yeah. You know, yeah. lots of trusts. Yeah you know so a director of strategic partnerships or strategy or partnerships exists at many trusts up and down the country mm. um and you know there are a number of cio board level positions up and down the country there's probably not enough um certainly not aligning to the long-term plan vision but there's you know there's a number of trusts with both there's some trusts in cheshire and merseyside who, who have both um i'm not aware that there's anyone that's merged the two together but that's not to say that they necessarily haven't Um, But So in effect it's two portfolios um, with one hat. So it's one portfolio with regards to the digital transformation, enablement and service delivery for the trust and then it's one about the strategic partnerships that the trust needs to develop um, as part of the wider system, whether that be the ICS or the the, um, integrated care system or the place or the region Um, and fundamentally the transformation that's needed to require to deliver the objectives of the long-term plan. Which, let's be honest, is not uniquely, but majors on digital. There's not much I can think of that you can say. Right, we're going to truly transform healthcare that hasn't got digital element to it. So the two, I think, are natural bedfellows, but yeah. I don't think they're often an yeah. associated roles.
0: Sure, sure, sure. So, so the partnerships role is that partnerships within, so partnerships with the local council, partnerships with other local NHS organisations, the CCG, etc., um, as well as partnerships with the private sector, or, or not
1: well we it, we don't have partnerships per se with the private sector we have strategic relationships with the private sure. sector it's, not. it's really about the partnerships with um, as you touched on so whether that be health and social care providers or uh, thames valley cancer alliance or you know we've got the the lacra the the care record piece we've got the ics or bob which is Buckinghamshire, oxfordshire and berkshire yeah. um yeah. so there's the third sector um it's, it's basically the partners that are required to deliver the best quality
0: care for the people of Oxfordshire. Sure. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. OK, cool. So let's move on to something a bit more personal then. So, you know, you've got a big role. You've got, fair to say, big pressures, huge responsibility. What do you do to unwind and relax? What do you do personally?
1: Um, well, I used to play golf, but I don't. I don't play golf much anymore. I'm nomadic as a golfer. Um, I don't think I could put my. I don't think I'm one of these people that could sit there and say, "Oh, I like to read books," or "I like to do this." I just, and this is why I found COVID has been tough. Not because, I mean, it's been hard, but in effect, what I like to do when I'm not in work is not think about work. You know, and I often to say this to staff. You know, as it, 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 in either, you know. Just general chats or whatever. We we all go to work to feel that we've got a purpose and earn the money to do the stuff we want to do when we're not in work. Mm. And then, um, but I don't have a particular thing I can put my finger on, Jack. You know, it's not like I've got a routine or anything. And, and this is why I found COVID hard, is because you can't really turn off from work because you get home and turn the telly on and it's all about COVID. COVID. You know, you go out at eight o'clock on a Thursday night and everyone's clapping you, you know, and it's like, is it's, it's, it's never-ending. and I, So I don't think I've got one thing I can say helps me relax, but I do have what, some principles. So I have something which I call the Emmerdale rule, um, which is because Emmerdale's the only soap that I watch for, for record. I'm, I'm not even ashamed about that. I love Emmerdale. Um,
0: I, I was going to say, I'm very surprised you've admitted that. I, would I, know
1: I don't that. know why. I mean, to be honest, it should probably win an Oscar or two. You know, it's, it's amazing. And... <laughs> But it, it I
0: starts, never would have had you as an Emmerdale watcher, to
1: be honest. I mean, I'm not a fanatic, don't get me wrong. I don't sky plus it. So when I come back from all day, I can catch up and I won't go on to wow. ITV plus one plus one or something to watch the ones I'm
0: I'm calling lies there. I'm calling lies. I bet you do. If, I bet you do, if,
1: No, I don't, honestly. if But if it's on, I'll watch it because it's normally seven o'clock that I'll sit down to eat my tea. So therefore, I associate sitting down with my tray with my tea and Emmerdale comes on and so therefore I have an Emmerdale rule from a work perspective which is after seven o'clock at night unless it's apocalyptic you shouldn't be sending emails to people you shouldn't be texting people about work after seven o'clock because they've got their own life balance they've got their own personal time um some people are a little bit obsessed with it you know they'll send out emails at seven eight nine ten o'clock and I just don't think that's fair because what you're doing is, come back to our email point before, you're discharging a responsibility for something you're asking somebody to do. You might not expect them to do anything about that till the next day. But if that email's pinged up on a, on a member of staff's phone from from a senior leader at eight o'clock, they might feel compelled to start answering that email or at least they're gonna start thinking about it. Mm. And why is, why is my personal time any less important or more important than their personal time? So I have a thing called the Emmerdale rule, which is at seven o'clock, Unless you're on call or unless it's apocalyptic, you don't send or do work. And that's my rule for relaxing, really. Then what <laughs> I do after that is, is debatable.
0: So I didn't, I didn't realise that your unwrap, un, relax and unwind would be Emmerdale, but I like your Emmerdale rule, and I'm probably guilty of not sticking to it. So that's actually... What you've said there is actually really useful for me because I didn't think about it in the way that you've just, you've just laid it out there, that the burden... Of work should be left after a certain time. And by emailing, although it can be dealt with in the morning, you know, people are then feel obliged to answer or start thinking about it. So I think that was actually some good advice for me and hopefully other people listening. So in the sense of you as a speaker, you're you're a brilliant speaker. And I and I know this because you've spoken at a number of my events and 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 it's not just me that thinks that, you know, the feedback forms are, are good. When did you realise you had a talent, or do you realise you have a talent for public speaking? And if so, when did you realise that?
1: Um, I don't, I didn't realise I did. But it, what I did realise when I started doing it was that I wasn't nervous in doing it. I get anxious just before I go on, normally that I'm going to forget my um, the key messages or the punchlines that I want to you know, the soundbikes that I want to get in. So I get that anxiety just before I go on and do any presentation. But I don't get a sense of nervousness when I'm up there. Um, And I'm not sure that I would say I'm brilliant, but I would say I enjoy it. Um, But there are times when I've gone and I've done some public speaking in non-corporate environments, whether that be, you know, reading a speech at a wedding or a eulogy at a funeral, and I've been dreadful. I mean, I'd like to say for the funeral, that was obviously the upsetness of the funeral, but yep. I, I wasn't good at that because it wasn't in my comfort zone. Um, but, you know, when I go up to present, you, you may have noticed I don't put much in the way of words on a PowerPoint presentation. If we go back to Pet 8 let's put that up there as number yeah, one. Yeah, reading, sli- no, reading I mean.
0: words from slides, eh? ace. Yeah.
1: But if you're going to put five bullets up and then read the bullets, I mean, mm-hmm. don't put the bullets up or, or whatever I can read. You know what I mean? So <laughs> the... <laughs> I be, because I tend to have pictorial um, aid memoirs to the message I'm trying to get across, I could do a presentation for you on a subject within my comfort zone every day of the week, and every presentation would be slightly different, they'll be different in length, they'll be different in in narrative, but the sound bites will be the same because I'll remember when I'm showing a picture of you know, a stethoscope for example that that's the point to mention this yeah so I, I I, I, I make myself easy in the process by only having to remember the key messages and not worrying too much about the detail in between because that just naturally flows. I think if you were to put me up and get me to do a presentation on something outside my comfort zone, you might have a different opinion.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Have you got any stories about speaking? Any 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 times where it's gone wrong or gone gone extremely well?
1: Um, well, I've got. I've some presentations where i tend to zoom in on a couple of people in the audience um and just focus on those people and i remember doing a presentation once and the the person who i managed to zoom up in when i was on stage had the body language i mean to be honest there was a question at one point i was thinking, you know they've fallen asleep and um their body language was sort of shrunk they were shaking their head at everything i said shaking quite viciously shaking their head rolling their eyes back on a few of the points i thinking, like, all right it's not going well with this guy so i sort of moved over to the other side of the room and focused on you know people that were nodding and smiling and agreeing and and, and etc and then when the presentation finished he came over and he came over because that's the best presentation i've ever seen totally agree with you and i was, <laughs> I was thinking well you nearly ruined me when i was on stage because i was really worried that i was pitching it wrong with the wrong the wrong audience and i think the the other thing that i've managed to do before now is, is, is put a presentation up and completely misjudge the mood of the audience, which I think is one of the things, it's an emotional intelligence thing, isn't it? You know, if you're going on to do a presentation at um, half past 11, let's say one of your events, if it's a half past 11 till 12 o'clock, you know people are going to be getting a bit touchy for lunch. Mm. So really, they want quite quick, snappy presentation at that. If you're doing a nine o'clock in your first on, you've got a little bit more freedom, people are a bit more awake, it's it's reasonably novel. They're having a nice coffee, and and I think I have done some presentations before now where I've gone a little bit too technical and it was a non-technical audience. And conversely, I've done a very high-level strategic stuff to a bunch of techies who just looked at me like I was a lunatic because they thought that they were there to hear about um, how to do something rather than why to do something. Yeah. So I don't think yeah. they're particularly funny anecdotes as such. I mean, I have fallen off the stage, so that could be quite a funny anecdote. Fallen
0: off the uh, stage. Fallen... You say?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. When I was walking off, I missed George. I thought it was a double step, and it wasn't. It was went flat through <laughs> the
0: curtain. I I would have hated for it to have been there. I wouldn't. have oh,
1: liked well, it, To be honest. honest, I was still live mic'd up, so the, the challenge challenged to try not to curse when I was doing it. <laughs> um,
0: I, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we we finish, just about COVID and 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 just kind of address that a little bit. Um, because I think and and and. This might sound weird initially, but but just stay with me a second. I think COVID's been brilliant for the NHS in some ways. Um, you know, take away the, the 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 huge pressures, the deaths, the 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 kind of misery and 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 horribleness behind it, and the fact that you know it's a disease killing people. But what it's forced the NHS to do is remove politics, remove red tape, remove the barriers to, to kind of digitise and transform and people be able to do some of a pace and stuff. So what's your thoughts on, on what I've said there? And, you know, disagree with me completely if you, if, you, if you want to.
1: Well, I don't think you can disagree, but I would put a somewhat a challenge up to say, weren't some of those barriers artificial anyway? Mm. Um, you, you know, what COVID, COVID's an absolute you know tragedy, and you, cool. know, uh, you know each one of those numbers that's flashed up on the bulletins each day is somebody's family or and it's it's horrible um, and the pressure and stresses that it's put the some of the frontline staff under is is it's unimaginable really but the what it has enabled us to do as a a national health service is to to, to effectively unite behind a common Purpose. Now, the common purpose at the beginning was to free up enough ITU capacity to cope with the search. Yep. Um, and so there was a common goal, a common purpose, a common piece. So, therefore, you didn't have to cut through any competing objectives. Or, you know, you might want to call that politics, but we'll call it competing objectives. However, you know, and I think that's good, and I've, I've gone on and on for years about how I wish we could do change quicker, you know, start start small-scale, fast-think-big type methodologies, And mm. but I wouldn't want to carry on doing it the pace we've done it over COVID either, I think, you know, that's been too quick, there's, there's a little bit of a throttle back, um, I, but I think, I think you're right in the sentiment, and I think the one thing that I think it probably has started to diminish, hopefully to the point where we can start having better conversations about transformation is the often quoted thing about people don't like change and change fatigue and change, etc. Um, of course, it's a natural human instinct to be somewhat reluctant to change, but it's not a factor to stop transformation. And what we've got now is a set of examples, live examples, of how we've managed to do that, but also how the patients have done that. You know, the fact that I've got 83-year-old grandparents. Using a tablet on a ward to send a text message to start a agnostic video consultation with their grandkids at home, I think can start putting to bed a little bit the piece about well, you can't have video consultation with the elderly. Yeah, um, we've got grandparents up and down the country who haven't seen their grandkids, who have seen them on Skype, on Blue Jeans, on Facetime, on Zoom, on you know plethora of video apps. People are getting the pe- people are getting used to it. Um, and also we've now got a scenario where as we've, we've returned to normal, or the new normal, or whatever we're meant to call the post period. You know, we're going to have cohorts would that, of patients.
0: Would you, should, that would want, you say want, that we're in that post period time now? Sorry to interrupt.
1: Um, yes. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and But I think the you know, we've got patients now that will not want to come into hospital. That will want to be able to have the offering of a video consultation if it's suitable it's not always suitable you know video consultation isn't the answer to everything it's not a panacea that's going to sort everything you know um and as i touched on earlier there's you know medicine is the most humanized profession you don't want to lose that human element from the profession and if and there are times when the doctor needs to put their hand on the patient it's as simple as that mm. or you would want to give bad news you would not do that over a pretend anywhere call would you you want to do that um, it may be in a different circumstance yeah. Or or surrounding. But on the same token there are a lot of times where patients are coming to hospitals historically for an outpatient appointment because that's the way we've always done it and what we've managed to prove ourselves is that's not necessarily how we need to do it and some of the barriers to not doing it have now been sort of proven can be overcome. So I think it will enable future and faster better transformation of, of the way we deliver care Um, And that'll answer a whole set of other social questions. You know, if you look at Oxford, beautiful city, um, the traffic's a nightmare. The traffic is an absolute nightmare in Oxford. Um, It's got this strange situation where it has a ring road um, and everything within the ring road is is just clogged up and everybody moves outside the ring road because it's cheaper to live. So in effect, it just gets more and more, the the traffic is really, really bad. And I think it's one of the worst in the country for pollution, actually, Oxford. you know, 86.2% of all statistics are made up. So I don't know what the number is, but there's going to be a, a large number of those people are either working at the John Ratcliffe, the Churchill, the orthopaedic hospital, or they're on the way for an appointment at one of the three hospitals. Mm. So the benefit from being able to offer a different solution to those patients for those appointments aren't just about convenience and cost and. You know yeah, how do you yeah, put waste into hard. two minutes social distancing, but mm-hmm. actually it could have a massive difference in regards to our carbon footprint and our environmental issues and I think hospitals, if I put my strategic partnership parts on, hospitals have a responsibility to act as an anchor organization in their community. We will be the biggest employer in Oxford, so we have a responsibility to drive down our carbon if we can drive down our carbon, city gets better
0: sure yeah yeah, makes sense it 's a different way of looking at it, but it makes complete sense um interesting so so where's next you know obviously not next because you're what six months into your role maybe over that
1: seven months today, seven months today
0: jack i feel honored i feel honored to share your seven month oxford anniversary with you um what you know where where do you see your future the future of 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 kind of david wallach in in, in the nhs because you've got a love for it right and and there's a clear passion for and and you said that you you wouldn't leave for um, all the tea in China you said um, so there we go it's on, re- it's, on, it's on record now if you leave I'm playing this back to you alright um, but, but have you ever got, have you got aspirations to, to go not that step further because I think it's wrong to say that but, but to be a CEO for example
1: yes that's, yeah. my, that's, that's my driving ambition I mean to be honest I often question myself why do I want to become a chief exec because um, most chief execs that I see um they you know they always look <laughs> you know they've got the world, weight of the world on their shoulders and um you know you were saying earlier you're speaking to james devine you know yeah. it, it, i mean he's he's quite young actually to become a chief exec isn't he and but i'm sure if you if you um if you bring him to some conferences in three years time you might look a bit older the um you know it's a it's a pressurized job yeah. The but i i do that's my personal goal and ambition is to become a chief executive not because of the status and the title but actually, I think I have or I'm learning some ideas and methods and techniques and processes, which I think I would like to one day be able to ultimately implement to improve the way our hospitals run. So ultimately, yes, to become a chief executive, but, you know, I'm not even thinking about that for, for years yet.
0: Well, at least another three. And and I'm not half,
1: ready. right? I'm not ready for it either. I'm not ready for it. Yeah. Um, and. I'm at Oxford. Why would I go anywhere
0: else? Of course, of course. Yeah, and no, it makes makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So, okay. So, look, the final question I want to ask you. So, it's a bit of a, a bit of a left field one. It's a hypothetical situation, um, and and in this hypothetical situation, you have left the NHS. So, you are now the CEO of a global consumer products company, and. Uh, as the CEO um, you, you've just released a new product and it's potentially going to change the world, but you've got to assemble the right board around you. So your first role or your first job within your new role as the CEO of this global consumer products brand is to assemble the last three members of your board. And on that you have to hire a chief marketing officer, a chief commercial officer. And because it's your back, your, your field, a chief information officer or a chief digital officer, who do you choose dead or alive and not people that you've necessarily worked with celebrities or, or, or major influencers or uh, entrepreneurs or whoever it might be. Who do you choose for those roles and why?
1: So, so there was a chief chief information officer, which with the other two, marketing
0: so chief and... officer, uh, a chief marketing officer and a chief commercial officer. And you're the CEO.
1: Okay. I think my, um, my chief commercial officer, I would appoint um, actually my the the director of finance that I had at uh, Liverpool Women's Hospital, okay. who probably taught me the most in my career development. Um, and she's she's now has left the NHS and runs a commercial um, company. Okay. And she she was both inspiring, funny, intimidating, um, and formidable. So I would definitely have her on the board. Um, for the chief information officer, I'd have my late uncle. Um, uncle john so he was a vice president at a very large um, international storage vendor um, very successful in that role over over many years he sadly passed away about nine years ago now Um, but he was really the when i when i found myself accidentally going into it back in 1996 and thinking i'm not going to stay here very long and then i looked at Uncle John and I was like, Well he's done all right out of this hasn't he so yeah. and he was such an inspiration as a as a as a person as well. He was I, I would have him as my chief information officer. What he didn't know about IT wasn't worth not knowing. Yeah. Um, and then I think for the chief marketing officer, do you know what, Jack? I would have the person that's behind the KFC Twitter account.
0: The what? The
1: the KFC Twitter account.
0: The KSE? What's that? The K- the KFC,
1: the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh,
0: the KFC, right. Yes, yes. What, because of their recent "we like nice try but but leave it to us" campaign.
1: Well, I think well, I think a number of reasons. One, I think when they ran out of chicken, which let's be honest, is a fundamental issue for, for yeah. my chicken company. Um, I thought their marketing campaign to say "sorry, we ran out of chicken" was both genius and funny. Yeah. But also, if you have a look at their Twitter account, they only follow um, eleven people. And the eleven know. people that they the eleven people they follow are the spice girls and people whose names is herbs because it's the eleven spurs um, herbs and spices that makes Kentucky Fried Chicken special. <laughs> and I just think that's absolute genius.
0: Yeah, no, it so it I would is.
1: Have, whoever does their whoever is the brains around that marketing. I would have on that board.
0: Well, there we go then. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being so honest and open. And um, I've really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. I think the tone has been fun. And, uh, and yeah, it's been, a, it's been a good Friday morning into afternoon.
1: No, it's been marvellous, Jack. But before you go, can I just, I've just realised one of a bugbear. And if I don't get it down onto record, it's going to bother me. In fact, okay. that might become a new bugbear. Right? Yep. I can't stand it when people say pin number. Because the N in PIN is number. So in effect, you're saying, what's your personal identification number number? It's either a PIN or it's a personal identification number. It can't be a PIN number. And it just bothers me for reasons that it shouldn't.
0: (laughs) You, so hold on a sec. So your two biggest bug, well, your three biggest bug, I get the first one, it's your name. But I definitely, definitely didn't expect that it would be milk bottle tops. And pin number would be your two bugbears but there we go <laughs> well if you ever
1: go and buy me a bottle of milk get the wrong color lid, and then text me to ask what my pin number is we're no longer friends
0: <laughs> there, we there, go. We go. <laughs> there we go there we go thank you very much yeah no it's been absolutely brilliant Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via, as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.